in the spirit of Thanksgiving, I thought it was a it might be a good time to look back and to uh, reflect on our past and to appreciate the people who have come before us. I I recently heard a a saying, I guess it's a Jewish saying, that they say to kill a man is to kill a nation. And what they mean is that when somebody dies, especially if they're young, it's not just them that dies, but it's every person that would have come from them. And that's kind of a big thought. But I was kind of thinking about that more in reverse of all the people who have come because someone did what they did. And so in that sense, I guess you could say that um, the birth of a man is the birth of a nation. Say it the other way around, because um, my first thought was Dr. Gonstead and his clinic, realizing that when Dr. Gonstead built his clinic, he was at a time in his life when most chiropractors are contemplating retirement. They're ready to, they're thinking it's been a good run and it's about time to hang them up and enjoy the twilight years. And instead, Dr. Gonstead said, wait, you haven't seen anything yet. What do you see what I do next? And he built the gigantic clinic and not for, not for nothing. I mean, he was, he was seeing a lot of patients. And so it, it served a practical purpose for him to have the clinic. But he also said that he wanted the clinic to be a monument to chiropractic. He wanted it to stand forever so people could see the house that chiropractic built. And I think it's pretty amazing when you think about the fact that in that clinic, it was built on nothing but subluxation-based chiropractic. There's no therapies, um, no traction, no lasers, no, no nutrition. Like he wasn't doing all these other things to build his practice. And it wasn't some kind of a gimmick and it wasn't some kind of uh, anything really business oriented at all. By all accounts, Dr. Gonstead wasn't a very good businessman, but that didn't keep him from having a lot of money and building big things because he understood, most importantly of all, he understood how to get a patient better. And that ability to get a patient better suddenly makes business go a whole lot easier. And that's kind of what he discovered is that he didn't have to be that good when he was seeing that many patients and he was making money like that. And so, um, and when I think about the clinic, I think about, well, I'll just tell you my story. For me personally, the first time I went to the clinic was in 1997. And, um, and at that time, I was a student in LA. I had heard about Gonstead. I'd heard about the clinic. I didn't know anything about it. And so I decided, well, it's time to take a trek, take a journey and go see this thing that chiropractic built. And I went with two other students, and I guess we were the really gung-ho into it people. Uh, oddly enough, today I'm the only one of the three of us who does Gonstead. So uh, I guess being gung-ho isn't enough to get you through at some point. And so I went to the clinic, and the first time I saw it, it was utter amazement at what I was looking at. Uh, and I've enjoyed many times since then taking students or taking young doctors with me to the clinic for their first time. And I enjoy their initial reactions because it's always the same as mine was to see the clinic and just say, wow, that was built on chiropractic. Uh, it's just amazing. And so what he did really did truly serve as a monument to chiropractic. And in that regard, I'm thankful for the Gonstead Foundation who keep the clinic going and keep it maintained because time and weather does its thing, but they worked very hard to keep it preserved and to keep it working so that it could be a functioning clinic. It could be a place where we could do seminars, but in many ways, it's also kind of a museum and it remains a testimony 
or a monument to chiropractic, what subluxation-based chiropractic can do. Um, and I think that all of us should be immensely grateful for Dr. Gonstead and what he built and the fact that he didn't just hang him up. He didn't just call it quits. Uh, he didn't decide to go enjoy retirement, but instead he decided to do something really huge that he knew would be monumental and he knew would leave a legacy. And it absolutely certainly has left a legacy. And none of us would be where we are today if it wasn't for the legacy he left behind. Uh, at the same time, I also think about um, previous generations of chiropractors, the chiropractors who went to jail so that we could be free to do what we do today, that there was once a time when all chiropractors who graduated understood, or I should at least say believed, that chiropractic was bigger than they were. And if that meant that they had to make personal sacrifice for the good of the chiropractic profession, they were going to do it. And it, it makes me sad that times have changed. Uh, I don't really think that we have that same spirit. I don't think there's too many who would endure personal trials for the sake of chiropractic, but I think there's a lot who would rather take from chiropractic what they never put in. Uh, and that's mostly just a generational thing. Times have changed. Uh, and it goes back to the thing of when times are hard, you expect them to be hard. So those guys came out of school expecting challenges, expecting it to be hard. Today we get out and we expect it to be easy and we're disappointed when it's not. And it's a very different environment. And uh, I'm grateful that they made those commitments and they made those choices and they went to jail and they fought the legal battles and they did the things that needed to be done. So again, we could be here today and, and do this with the relative ease that we do. I think also of the time period of uh, the flu pandemic in 1918, it was because of what chiropractors were able to do during the flu pandemic that led to every state eventually granting them licensure. And had it not been for them showing up at that time for that period of a couple of years, if they hadn't been able to show up and get results, who knows when or if we ever would have gotten licensure or if chiropractic would have been effectively eliminated before it could ever really get going. And so who knows what would have been if, if they hadn't done it, but they did do it. They showed up, uh, they got the results. Uh, there's, I, I've talked over the years many times, especially when I first started in practice, I would talk to patients who were older, who had been around during those times, who had lived, who had lived through those early periods. Unfortunately, now many of them, if not all of them are gone because time has just passed so much. So to be, to be around during the flu pandemic now means that you're well over 100 years old. Whereas when I started in practice, uh, they were um, they were not. They were in their 80s and 90s. And it was interesting because what all of them would say is that there was a period of time when it didn't really matter who your chiropractor was because they all understood subluxation, they all knew how to get an adjustment, and they all they all had reverence for the body's natural healing ability. So they didn't do things like over-adjusting their patients and they didn't adjust too hard and they didn't do crazy things. They just tried to work with the body to get people better. And by doing that, chiropractic as a whole was effective. And at that period of time, that is the only way chiropractic could be and still survive. It had to be effective and it had to be non-traumatic. I, I had an, an odd thing happen a few weeks ago. I was talking to a lady who is, I would say she's pro-chiropractic, but she happens to be a nurse at the Reno Stroke Institute. And she, so she kind of said to me, 
kind of sheepishly, she said, she asked me about strokes and chiropractic, right? Because we hear that all the time and we go, oh, it's way overblown, blah, 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 the whole thing. I didn't do that. I'm glad I didn't because remember, she works at the Stroke Institute. And so I, so I said, yes, you can cause a stroke with an adjustment if you do it very poorly. And so I started talking to her about the factors that lead to compromising the vertebral artery versus those that don't. And I just explained the difference. And then, and she was very attentive. And then she said, that's very interesting. And then she gave me the line she should have led with, which was, she said, so far this year, we've already seen over 12 cerebrovascular accidents, strokes caused by chiropractors. And she said, and we see 12 to 15 every single year. And I said, that's funny, because according to the statistics that we're told, you know, one out of every 25 million, it's more likely you'll get hit with lightning twice. Well, Reno only has about a half a million people. So when you figure out the number, if they're getting a dozen for 500,000, that's way more than one in 25 million. So that's something to think about. That's interesting. And I told her, that's interesting. That tells me that maybe these numbers are not so accurate. I said, now, of that group, here's what I would say. I would guess that maybe even so much as half the people that are being attributed to chiropractic self-manipulated. And she said, you know, that's probably true. We don't keep, we don't, we don't differentiate. I said, right. So they don't differentiate between a, a chiropractic adjustment given by somebody who knows how to do chiropractic and is licensed to do it versus someone who's not. That's like saying that surgery kills people and you include all the people who decided to operate on themselves. Um, it's not totally up and up, but you know, that's how we get treated. So that's how it is. I said, there's one other thing. And I said, and I say this based on the fact that there was a study where they looked at SIDS babies. And one of the things they were looking at was essentially internal decapitation. And it had to do with how many pounds of pressure the doctor was exerting on the head in, in a form of uh, vertical traction to extract the baby. So, of course, they're pulling on the head while the baby's shoulders are stuck inside. And so the neck now becomes the rope in a game of tug of war. And what they found was that certain doctors had a much higher incidence of SIDS babies than others. And that right there tells you that SIDS is environmental and not genetic. Because otherwise, why would certain doctors have more of them and other doctors have less? And they found that it was directly correlated with the amount of force the doctors like to use. In fact, one of the interesting findings is that in general, as an average, which averages are terrible in science, but as an average, female doctors have fewer SIDS babies the male doctors. Why? Because the males are stronger and they probably pull more. So that's why. That's the obvious conclusion. And so I told her, I said, based on that study and based on knowing that, I said, I'm going to bet you that if you could go back and look at all the cerebrovascular accidents that you've had in the stroke clinic, I would bet you, you would find that certain doctors might be responsible for multiples. I said, so let's say you had 12, 12 legitimate strokes. I said, you might only have three or four doctors that are causing them all. And she, and she said, wow, that'd be interesting. And I said, wouldn't that be important to know? Because at some point we either need to intervene and say, you guys need to either change what you're doing or you need to stop practicing. And also, if you happen to all three or four be doing the exact same thing, maybe we need to do something to stop that from happening. Because it's possible that they're all doing something unusual and that they're all doing it. And that's what's leading to the stroke. So it's not really scientific, obviously, because... We've controlled for nothing. We have no idea what is actually causing this. And so I could be wrong. Maybe it's 12 different doctors making 12 different strokes. That's possible. But I bet you it's not. That would be my gut reaction. Just I bet you it's not. 
because just from seeing lots and lots of students, I know that the worst adjustments tend to come from the same people. And it's because they're not very good at what they do. And people who aren't very good at what they do tend to do it wrong a lot compared to people who know what they do and tend to do it wrong a whole lot less. So that was basically my thought. And so I say this because I think that we still have some battles that we need to fight. And we owe it to future generations the same way the past took care of us. We need to take care of them. And we owe it to them that we figure out what we're doing right now as a profession. And I don't mean this in a gusto way. I mean it's in a whole chiropractic umbrella. We need to figure out not only what doesn't work, but probably more importantly, we need to find out what is truly dangerous. Because if I make the statement that you shouldn't do the Y strap because it's dangerous, somebody can come with the comeback and say, well, you haven't proven that. Can you show me scientific evidence and prove that? And the answer is no, I cannot. Now, we all know that to do that kind of study, if our hypothesis is that it hurts people or that it can potentially hurt people, we're now doing a study where we're hurting people that would never get by IRB. So we're not going to be able to do that study. But the fact that we can't do that study doesn't mean that it's now magically good for people. So there's work there in the middle ground that needs to be put together to be able to say, these are things that don't make sense. We shouldn't be doing them. They need to stop um, if people are getting hurt. And so I think that we're so far out of bounds that we don't even know if people are getting hurt. We're not even keeping records because now the law gets involved. If somebody gets hurt by a chiropractor, then it goes to court and they have to sign an NDA. And now even though somebody was hurt by a procedure, nobody's allowed to talk about it. And if that procedure does that a hundred times, a hundred people end up in court, a hundred people with non-disclosure agreements. And now you've got a hundred people who are injured by the same exact move, but nobody's allowed to talk about it. And everybody just keeps on going along with life thinking, well, there's no proof it hurts anybody when in fact there's a hundred evidences it did, but because of the way the legal system works, nobody's talking about it. And that's where it gets complicated, but I think that's where we need to be looking at what we can do for future generations to try to clean up this profession, try to make it better for the next one, the same way the people before did it for us. Uh, I think every generation owes that to the one behind them, because certainly we, we have privileges and we have ease today that did not exist in the past, but the people in the past paid the price so that we can reap the benefits. And so reaping benefits, um, reaping a harvest we did not sow necessitates that we then sow for the next generation a harvest that we will not reap. And that's just kind of my idea for Thanksgiving, that we should be thankful for what we've received as a profession, what was handed down to us, but then we should be doing everything we can to make it better for the next one. And we should be trying to work out some of these de details when it comes to science, when it comes to um, art and philosophy, um, what what can we know better? What can we do better? How can we get better results? And how can we also at the same time protect our patients and keep them safe and try to take whatever risk of harm there is and reduce it as close to zero as humanly possible? That should always be the goal for every generation. So um, this holiday, thankful spirit. I, I hope you had a wonderful, awesome Thanksgiving. Uh, and we'll be back with another episode next week.